We begin our, our last talk, as we've always been doing, with a prayer to Our Lady. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh... Again, I guess this is the second time y'all are seeing me this morning. Um, you know, as I was leaving our little discussion or the breakfast, just realizing, looking at the faces of those shining novices, over 20 years, I've seen a lot of shining faces become the bright, shining faces of sisters like that, uh, Sister Marie Andre, and just how the transformation and the growth that I've seen, uh, knowing some of these sisters now for almost two decades and the good work they do particularly here in the retreat house. Um, and so just again, I want to thank you for your support of this very important ministry. We know the sisters do all kinds of stuff, uh, nurses and teachers, but this work here at Sacred Heart Retreat House, uh, it's such a gift. And, and I guess it's the part that I've been the most associated with and I'm most familiar with getting to know the sisters over the years who've been retreat directresses uh, telling me what to do. Uh, which is always a gift. We learn two most important words of working with sisters. Yes, sister. <laughs> They're not denying that. She's not shaking her head. So, again, thank you for your support of the retreat house and the good work that they do here. Uh, they really depend on your generosity. So, I, 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 after my talk last night, I guess it was a long day, and, and the way the spirit works, I have an idea, then I go back and say, ah, I wish I should have said this, or I should have clarified that. So sort of wanting to go back a little bit, you know, talking about last night prayer and this idea of, of symboling what Mary did in her heart uh, is a description of contemplative prayer. You know, I think we could probably give a hundred different diff- definitions of what contemplative prayer is. And so often I think we think, well, contemplative prayer is, you know, uh, St. Teresa of Avila in ecstasy or something or people levitating. The truth is contemplative prayer, true contemplative prayer is nine times out of ten done in darkness. If things don't fully make sense, it is not an easy thing to do. Um, and so we've got to realize that, that, that contemplative prayer is more than I think what most people think is. It is. Second, as much as I like the poem, I don't think it belongs, so I removed it if I ever give this talk again, because uh, it kind of threw off the, the rhythm of the whole entire, the whole entire talk. Uh, talking about the emptiness of the garden and not seeing the bearing fruit. Probably use it for a different talk, but a clarification with that. And then really ending up and going over it with this compost that helps the garden of the heart to grow. And we are going to see fruit in our lives, maybe not when or how we're going to see it, because it doesn't depend on our work so much. All we can really do is sort of present the compost. But Jesus is the gardener. He asks us to work, and we have to be vigilant in the garden, or else what's going to happen? Weeds are going to grow up. And so it's a constant work of composting, the constant work of symboling and bringing our needs and desires and the needs and desires of others to Christ so they can grow and give delights to others. So that's just sort of what we were trying to say or what I was attempting to say last night. But putting it in context of everything we've been talking about, we've seen that a Marian heart is tender, receptive, pure, and contemplative. 
contemplative in its own prayer. And so now I want to move into this last quality of the Marian heart. And like yesterday, it may end up being that I'm trying too much to describe something which I should describe much simpler, but we're going to give it a shot. I mentioned early on that that heart is the refuge, and I use the word sanctuary, heart of a temple. It's the place of prayer. Well, there's some biblical scholarship that shows that in Genesis, in the description of the Garden of Eden, here we have the sort of that primordial garden, that an argument can be made that the author or authors of the first chapters of Genesis are describing creation as a reflection or an image of the heavenly temple. Heaven is a temple, and the creation is a temple, and the heart of that temple, the sanctuary, is the garden. It's the Garden of Eden. And if you read it, you see that the garden is facing east, guarded by the angels. The tree of life is like the menorah in the temple. Adam is the priest, the gardener who has the duties to tend to the sanctuary. There's gold decorating everything, a reflection of God's presence. God dwells there in the sanctuary on the ark. And there's the water, if you know the temple, that flows from it, uh, just like you have the rivers flowing from the Garden of Eden. So this idea of sanctuary and garden, all these things begin to tie together. So if Christ's body then is the temple, on earth, heaven coming down to earth, then it's going to be Mary's heart is the sanctuary. The sanctuary of the body, the safe place, the refuge, the place of contemplation prayer where we can encounter God. But even more, that's what we understand this because contemplation means con templum, with or in the temple. The temple is that place that is marked off a sacred space set apart for God and our encounter with him. Actually, if you look at the etymology of the word temple, it means to, to set apart, to set something aside, to mark it off for God. And contemplation, as we talked about, is being in God's presence. Yes, beholding his beauty, symboling things in our heart. Her pondering was her heart, contemplative, not trying to figure them out, It's not something necessarily primarily of the intellect, but something much deeper, giving it to the Lord to be able to transform it. A Marian heart is that garden sanctuary that is the space set aside for this. So there's that, that, the words, contemplation and temple, they're connected. They're connected. And so I was doing some reading. This is where I'm going with this. It's a reading on contemplation and the nature of contemplation. And I stumbled upon a passage from St. Thomas Aquinas. This is from his work, the Summa Contra Gentiles. And I'm not necessarily going to read the whole thing because Thomas can often be a little challenge for us to parse out and understand. And he's talking about contemplation. And for contemplation for Aquinas is a little bit different than, let's say, contemplation as we know it or Carmelite contemplation. It's basically this sort of simple beholding or simple gaze of the truth, the truth of the Christ, the truth of the faith, the truth of God. But it is a type of prayer. 
Um, and so our understanding of contemplation today sort of draws from it. But he says that this contemplation is done without an end or without a purpose. Now, he doesn't mean that, that prayer doesn't have a meaning or a purpose, but that the fact is that contemplation, or as we're going to define it here, prayer is an end in itself. We, we really ought not be praying so that we become holy. We ought not be praying to do other things. We're praying because it's good to pray. It's good to contemplate. It's good to behold the vision of God. Because, I mean, that's ultimately what we're going to be doing in heaven. We're going to be contemplating for eternity in heaven. We're not doing it in order to get something from it. It doesn't have an end beyond itself. But what Thomas does is he compares it to a couple of other things. Other things that he claims are done without a purpose beyond itself. Or maybe even in a certain sense done without a purpose at all. And he says there are certain actions that do not seem to be for an end. He uses contemplative actions. He uses other purposeless actions, and he talks about stroking a beard. It's mindless. You're not really doing it for a purpose. The third thing, he says, are playful actions. Playful actions. We play not to get anything out of it. We play just because of the pleasure that comes from play. We enjoy playing. Children enjoy playing. Humans enjoy playing. It's done without some purpose, something greater towards the end. Fruit may come from it, but it's not done for an end. And so there's a comparison he makes, in some sense, comparing prayer and contemplation to play. And, and I began thinking about that, and I've done a fair amount of thinking about this over the course and praying about it over the course of the past year or so, that they are very, very similar. Prayer, contemplation, we're kind of using them interchangeably in play. And so you can go online and you can dig up a list of the qualities of play. There are a lot of people who, who study play. And one of the guys, I believe his name is Dr. Stuart Brown, he's a sociologist, in a book on play, lists these certain characteristics of play. The first is this. It's apparently purposeless. It's done for its own sake, sort of as we've already seen. Number two, it's voluntary. No one can force you to play. It's like forced fun whenever we're in high school. I don't want to have forced fun. No, it's voluntary. Number three, there's an inherent attraction. We want to play. There's also a freedom from time. When you are playing, you kind of lose your sense of time. You get wrapped up in the activity. There's also a diminished consciousness of self. You lose yourself in the play. You also maybe are playing and pretending to be someone else. There's an improvisational potential. There's open-ended. There's not a set script to it. And finally, there's a continuation desire. Remember you're out playing and your mom or dad said, come inside. I don't want to go inside. I don't want to stop playing. I'm going to play forever. And so as I started thinking about this, I realized that these same characteristics, in, in a certain sense, an ideal situation for a person who knows and loves the Lord, who's really practicing their faith, 
who's coming to Sacred Heart Retreat House on a regular basis, these things describe prayer. They describe contemplation. Apparently, purpose, voluntary, I can't force you to pray. For the person who's deeply spiritual, there is an inherent attraction. They want to spend time with the Lord. A freedom from time. Now, some people may say, oh, you know, I'm always looking at my watch. But for the person who really enters into a relationship with Christ, will find that they're just sitting at prayer for two or three hours. That's what happens. There's a diminished consciousness of self. Hopefully you're thinking more about God than yourself. An improvisational potential. You're following what the Spirit attracts, and there's that continuation desire. A desire to continue being with the Lord, to being in his presence. Now granted, you present this to a lot of Catholics, and they're going to say, Father's homily was too long. Why doesn't Mass get out early? I can't sit and pray for more than ten minutes. I'm talking about people who are seriously committed to their faith, who understand that even though they may struggle to do that, it's something that they ought to or want to do. And so my question is, is it possible to see prayer and contemplation, this is more than simply just reciting prayers, as play? Can they be interconnected? Are the temple and the playground connected? Both are safe places. Both we need places, safe places to worship and to pray. And from my experience, I'm sort of connecting to what I've just said, that people, a lot of people, see prayer not as a time to find recreation. Play can be a recreation, but it's work. I go to prayer, I need to achieve something. I have certain goals to meet. I need to impress God. I need to pray this really good rosary. I need to say all of my novenas. I need to do all of these things. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things. But prayer becomes almost like a technique that we follow. A way that we have to, to achieve. And I, I see this in the seminarians because these guys are often working out. They, they, they see their prayers like, I worked out today, I had leg day, but I couldn't, I couldn't squat as much as I normally do. I had a bad workout. And so what happens, they apply it to prayer. And they go to prayer, I, I didn't focus the whole entire time. And so what does that make? That makes Jesus like your high school football coach. He's got the, 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 the whistle around his neck, and he has the little band around his head, and the, the tall socks, and the tight pants. No, he's not. It's not what prayer is. It's not, a, it's not a technique to follow. It's not a time for achievement. Nor is it a time to sit and work out a problem. I'm going to understand this. I'm going to figure this out. No. Children don't try to understand. In play, we don't do that. In play, it's free. And so what happens is, as I've seen, when we approach prayer as work or as something to achieve, Whenever we don't do it perfectly, guess what happens? We beat ourselves up. I'm not doing this anymore. It's too hard. I'm not going to do it. I'm giving up on prayer. But what I began to do is say, why don't we quit looking at prayer as that, as work or as something to achieve, and begin to see it as a time of play, a time of recreation, a time even of resting with the Lord. Wasting time with God, resting in his presence. And so you know that passage whenever the apostles go out to work, and Jesus says, come away and rest with me for a while. That's prayer. 
time of just resting with the Lord. We get enough busyness and craziness in our lives. We're working so hard all the time and we're so anxious. You can't bring that into the church. You can't bring that to your time with Jesus. He's happy if you do. He still is happy to see you. But prayer is the time of rest. Prayer is the time of playing. Once people understand that, then I see things begin to change. It's not that they're going to go there and play angry birds on their phone. That's not prayer. They don't come. They're so, I'm just saying, Lord, Lord, I'm here just to be with you. I'm tired. I just need a time to rest, to play, to be present, and let you minister to me. Prayer's not so much what we do, but what the Lord does to us. It's a lot less anxiety. Life is a lot more peaceful. And so if this is true then, what demographic spends the most time playing? Children. Children do. And so the spiritual life ties back to spiritual childhood. Mary is the perfect one who is the child, and so therefore she is the one who knows how to play. Spiritual childhood, so many qualities and ways to describe. Children are innocent, pure, trusting, small, hidden. You can look at St. Therese and see all of that. But we can see all of them in Our Lady. Ultimately, her knowledge of her identity as a daughter and her willingness to trust in her Heavenly Father. She lived spiritual childhood perfectly. But as I said, the most distinguishing characteristic of childhood is not purity, is not innocence, it's playfulness. Children are and should be playful. When they're not, we know there's a problem. And so this is the fifth characteristic of the Marian heart. It is playful. It knows how to pray, but it also knows how to play. And I think my experience bears it out, and I'd be willing to bet if you spent some time thinking about it, the people that you know who are genuinely the most holy, the most close to the Lord, are the most childlike and playful. Truth of Avila says there should be no sour-faced saints. You know, I can think in my own life of priests and religious and students and people that I've met who I believe are truly saintly, are holy. They're all playful people. They're not childish, but they're childlike. They enjoy to laugh. They understand that playfulness is a virtue. In fact, Thomas Aquinas talks about it, eutropelia. Why? Why is this? Because they're living spiritual childhood. They're confident in their identities. They have that healthy self-love that comes from knowing they're loved by the Father, and therefore they're free to play. They're not weighed down by all these cares and worries. They go to work, they get their stuff done, but they do so with that playful, childlike disposition. If you want to better understand this, let's look at the opposite of the childlike heart, of Mary's trusting, playful, childlike heart. I think we're going to call it an orphan heart, an orphan heart. The orphan is abandoned, does not know his parents, does not know love or affirmation, who feels alone and isolated. And this insight came from something I read from a book by Dr. Dan Allender. 
Allender runs the Allender Center up in Washington State, who mainly is a Christian therapist who does work with victims of trauma and sexual abuse. And he talks about the orphan heart as a wound. Some of us have this orphan heart and the different effects of it. And he says that many orphans, people with orphans' hearts, struggle to delight and play because of their war with rest. And he goes on to describe people he's worked with, with these orphan hearts that don't, that don't know love. And that they struggle with learning to rest. They struggle with learning to pray. Why? Because a heart, they always have to be on guard. They're always fending for themselves. They're always having to prove themselves. And sometimes we'll see that we all have a little bit of an orphan heart. Or we say, I'm going to do this all by myself. I'm isolated. I don't need anybody else. I'm out of my own. They put up walls. But he says a heart that cannot rest cannot play. To play, one must be able to put down the sword of hypervigilance, be disarmed, and welcome the delight and gratitude that come from someone offering to us we cannot give to ourselves. Hey, here's your identity. Here's here's a gift. But if all you do is you have your, your weapons up, You're not able to rest until you are disarmed. It goes back to the walls we discussed with the walls of trauma. So if if we're going to say then that the Marian heart is childlike and is playful, what are going to be some of the qualities of this prayerful yet playful Marian heart? The first is this, joyfulness. Joyfulness. More than just happiness, but joy is the clearest sign, at least that I know, of someone who knows their identity as a child. Joy is something which is, which is much deeper. You can maybe be in a bad mood, but you can still be joyful about it. And joy flows, I think, primarily from the purity of heart that children have. The people who are the most pure of heart that I've seen tend to be the most joyful people, which is quite the contrary to what the world says, that, well, if you're out not having sex and you're not doing these different types of things, you're going to be miserable. The purest people that I know are the most joyful people. So this is why we call Mary the cause of our joy. She can't give joy. She can't cause it if she doesn't have it. And so I think often we think of Mary as, well, she's very holy and prayerful all the time. No, Mary was joyful. The Magnificat is joyful. I think she probably said the stuff she said to Jesus and, and John 2 at the wedding of Cana in sort of a joyful, sporting manner. There were times of great sadness, but she was joyful to encounter Christ in the risen and the day of the resurrection. We've got to rework the way that we see Mary if we believe she's the cause of our joy. And so, like children, these joyful people bring joy to other people. Bring joy to other people, just like Mary did. Number two. With this playfulness comes a great trust in the Lord. I see this, people come and they give talks. And they give a great talk and they say, all right, what you need to take away from this talk is you need to trust God more. I'm sure we've all heard homilies. You need to trust God more. You you can't will trust. Just like I can't will you to love someone. You're going to love this person. No. Love is a byproduct of a relationship. And trust is a byproduct of something else. 
And the type of trust we're talking about is not trusting your government or trusting your boss, but we're talking about trusting your father. We're talking about filial trust, childlike trust. And so trust is a byproduct of spiritual childhood. Children trust because they know that their father loves them and is watching out for them. They have a space they can play. They're safe. They're going to be okay. They don't have to worry about where they're going to sleep tonight or where their food is going to come from. So my thing is, if you want to be more trusting, then be more childlike. If you want to be more childlike, then be more playful. Number three, and and, and this one is a distinction that I like to make that I think is important, is that the child delights in others and things and knows that they are delighted in. I've seen this in working with people. You know, God loves you. And they say, yeah, Father, I know God loves me, but parents are supposed to love their kids. I don't think he likes me. And so that's what I'm beginning to realize. There's got to be something different. I can love you and want what's good for you, but still want to spend time with you. That we need to learn to be able to delight in other people. Our face, as we talked about, lights up when we see them. We enjoy being in their presence. We all know this. People who sort of elicit delight in us and people who are delighted when they see us. I haven't seen you for such a long time. Like I was delighted to see the sisters today. I'm sure all of you were delighted to come back and see the sisters here and how happy you were. And so a Marian heart knows it is delighted in. Not just love, but delighted in. Mary knew the father saw her and delighted in her and loved her. And so was able then to share that with other people. I read an article a few years ago, and I've talked about it a number of times, these kids who are athletes, and they interviewed them. What's the most important thing that you have ever heard your parent tell you? Most people, if you think of it, would think, well, I'm proud of you, great job. No. The thing that meant the most to these student athletes is to hear from their parents, I love to watch you play. I delight in watching you play. You're not achieving anything. You're not producing anything. But you're playing and being delighted in. And if you look at children themselves, if they're delighted in, how easy it is for them to delight. Because kids don't check their emotions. They're so happy. This puppy delights them. This, This flower delights them. Seeing other people, they run up and they give you a big hug. I'm talking to a teacher about that the other day. All the kids running up who hadn't seen them in a while, delighting in them. And being delighted in changes our hearts. We feel the love that comes from that. Probably one of the most beautiful things that, that, that I've ever read on delight comes from Pope Francis. And he talks about this in his document, Amoris Laetitia, number 129. Since we were made for love, we know that there is no greater joy than that of sharing good things. Give, take, and treat yourself well, Book of Sirach. The most intense joys in life arise when we are able to elicit joy in others. It's a foretaste of heaven. We can think of the lovely scene in the film Babette's Feast when the generous cook receives a grateful hug and praise. Oh, how you will delight the angels. It is a joy and a great consolation to bring delight to others and to see them enjoying themselves. This joy, the fruit of fraternal love, is not that of the vain and self-centered, but of lovers who delight in the good of those whom they love, 
who give freely to them and thus bear good fruit. End quote. It's like what, coming, that's why you come to the retreat house. You don't come to listen to me because you know the sisters delight in you. When they see you, it's so good to see you. And they do such a great job in delighting in the retreatants. And so we want to delight back in them, to give thanks for the gift that they've given to us. And then finally, if we, a Marian heart who is playful, wants to play with others. And so, yeah, granted, look, I like to play by myself. It's all right to play by yourself as a kid. But there's got to be at least a willingness and open to playing with others. I mean, one of the greatest pains that we can experience as a kid is going up and saying, can I play with you? No, I don't want to play with you. Rejection. But instead, it's like, yeah, come play. We're going to figure out some way. Kick the ball, do whatever. It's a welcoming heart. It goes back to what we talked about. A way to include others. Here's the safe place, but come play. Even willing, as Mary was at Cana, to pay attention to details. Oh, this kid is sitting on the periphery looking bored. Hey, come play with us. Come, come, come in and have a good time. We're going to find a way to make you feel included. And so, and we all see this, the way that the joy is shared. The one kid is sad all of a sudden, and we, we watch it, and the delight that comes from that. So these are the qualities, and I'm sure there are others, what I think, of a playful Marian heart. And so Mary would have always been looking for the kid on the outside, inviting them in to come and play, delighting in the apostles. She would have shared all that. And so this is the, 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 the metaphor, the analogy that I really want to offer as we come to try to land this plane, is that those who encounter a Marian heart will find a playful spirit, but I think, as crazy as this analogy is, they'll find a playground. Now, while the Marian heart is a refuge, it is a garden, it is also a playground. Monkey bars, all that kind of stuff. Why? A playground is a safe space. Now, it's really a safe space. It wasn't like when I was a kid, and, you know, it was all metal, and it was hot during the summer, and there were gravel, and you fall, you bust your head open. Now even the rocks are like made of foam or something. <laughs> uh, it's true. Uh, I've never played on any of those, but it was. It, it looks like it's fun. <laughs> but it, so it, we go back to the, the safe place, the temple, the sanctuary, to be able to rest and to be restored, but also to be able to play, to be a child. So I think we I mean, let's talk about sanctuaries, these playgrounds. I think it's the Holy Family in Nazareth. I've talked about this a lot before in other talks that I've given. We think that Nazareth, everyone's walking around, it's like a monastery. It wasn't a monastery. All right? Mary played with Jesus. Joseph played with Jesus. This is what normal people do. There was a joyful spirit to it. People wanted to come in to that sanctuary. The door was always open. Mary was a great cook, I'd imagine. She was perfect. So... I, yeah, this, I think it's re-envisioning the way we even look at the Holy Family. There's been so much joy. So Mary's heart is a playground, is a place that when we encounter Mary's heart or encounter a Marian heart, we are free to play. We don't feel the burden. We feel delighted in. We feel overjoyed. We can joke. We can have a great time. That's the analogy. And when we encounter it, we know it. Because it brings that true freedom 
and, and that restoration of a childlike spirit. And I know when y'all leave here, you're going to have that because Sacred Heart Retreat House really is like a big playground. I know sisters probably think, I don't want people climbing the trees <laughs> or hanging from there, but it's, it is. This is that childlike spirit, and it really is a gift. And, and I want to go back, though, to this. And as we kind of, this is the really land of the plane. That connection, then, between prayer and play. And he said, Father, this is crazy. You know, yeah, Aquinas mentions it, but he doesn't really connect it. Well, guess who does? Cardinal Ratzinger. Now, I'm going to get into all of this, but there's an essay that he wrote where he specifically makes the connection between prayer, specifically liturgical prayer, and play. And I won't necessarily give you the whole entire quote, but he says that if we understand the theory of play, we can get closer to the the essence of the liturgy, which is the, the, the highlight of our prayers, the most perfect prayer. So he says, children's play seems in many ways a kind of anticipation of life, a rehearsal for later life without its burdens and gravity. So they, they, they play house, they play school, well, often sort of play warfare or whatever it is. You're playing. Sometimes they play priest and sister, you know, like that. It's a rehearsal for life. On this analogy, the liturgy would be a reminder that we are all children, or should be children in relation to that true life towards which we yearn to go, which is the life of virtue, the life of sanctity, the life of heaven. Liturgy would be a kind of anticipation, a rehearsal, a prelude for the life to come, for which, etern- which is eternal life. Seen thus, liturgy would be the rediscovery within us of a true childhood, of openness to a greatness still to come, which is still unfulfilled in adult life. And so, that's what he's saying, is that the liturgy is that anticipation of the heavenly life. And as we participate now, as we go through our lives, we're growing into that. There's children who are, in a certain sense, playing. And here then, in the liturgy, when this childlike spirit is restored, there would be a concrete form of hope which lives in advance of the life to come, the only true life, an initiation into the life of freedom, of intimate union with God, of pure openness to our fellow men. So basically, he's saying that the liturgy we celebrate today is the heavenly liturgy. We're participating in this sanctuary, in the the liturgy that is described in Revelation in heaven. And so it's heaven breaking into the world. This is the real making it present. Now, granted, most people maybe don't understand Mass, or don't understand this, so their Mass is pretty terrible. But it should give us that childlike spirit as we are preparing and certainly playing for the real heaven when we get there and are going to celebrate that divine liturgy. But what it implies is the fact that heaven then becomes a playground. Heaven becomes a time when we have eternal rest and play. And what's my main argument for this? Jesus said, if you want to get into heaven, what do you have to do? you got to become like children. Well, if you become like children, children don't want to go to work. They don't want to go to the office. 
they want to go to the playground. So heaven becomes a playground. One of the most beautiful books on play ever written was by Hugo Rahner. It's Carl Rahner's brother. And it's a book called Man at Play. And he says, the child in man desires to play. And the final answer to that longing, the answer of truth to all our searchings is the word of him who, being himself the word, became a little child. That is why the streets of the heavenly city will be full of playing children, and the ancient of days, whose face is forever young, will never cease to say to men, Ite et ludite, come and play. Heaven is the eternal playground. Mary's heart, the sanctuary, is the playground. And it all connects to what? The Sabbath, the day of rest, what we're celebrating today. Heaven is the eternal Sabbath. Liturgy happens on the Sabbath. So prayer and play, a time of recreation, of restoration, and of rest. Bring us all back to where we're all going, to that heavenly temple where Mary is now, the Ark of the Covenant, situated in the heart of the sanctuary. It all ties together. And so, as we wrap this up and we prepare for our Holy Mass and going home, this is the goal. All the other parts of the Marian heart are important, but it should lead to, through the contemplation, through the pure sword, we can experience all that, to have the childlike spirit, the playful heart, and to check our consciences. Mary, give me a heart like yours. Help me to be playful and help others to find that sanctuary, that playground in my own Marian heart. We can all be children, not fighting with each other, but delighting in each other, all looking forward to encountering Mary, encountering saints, and the eternal liturgy, the eternal playground of heaven. Amen.